This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. He was known as simply the greatest. Muhammad Ali, formerly, of course, Cassius Clay, was one of the best boxers at any weight class in the history of the sport. But many people believe the work he did outside the ring may have been more transformative with his work to help create a level playing field for people of color in society and the work that he did to help find a cure for Parkinson's disease. Ali, of course, most of you know, is being laid to rest today in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. 15,000 people coming to say goodbye to him inside the Yum Center inside Louisville, but millions more around the globe paying their respects in their own ways. To take a look at his career, we are joined by Randy Roberts, distinguished professor of history at Purdue University. He's also the co-author of the book Blood Brothers, the Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And also joining us is Jonathan Eig, who is a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he is writing a biography about Muhammad Ali. Randy, Jonathan, great to have you on the show today. Good to be on the show, Dan. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh, uh, let's start with the, probably the, the easiest question to throw out there. Randy, you first. What's your lasting memory of, of, of the Ali legacy? Wow, that's a tough one. You know, when, when he died... I started to think about, you know, I kind of think about literature a little bit because I'm an old literature guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought of uh, Hamlet. And there's one scene in Hamlet that I really loved. And it's, it's Horatio's talking to Hamlet about Hamlet's father. And Horatio says to Hamlet, says, I, I, I saw your father once. He was a goodly king. And Hamlet almost corrects them, almost to say he wasn't a king. Hamlet says he was a man. Take him for all in all. I'll not see his life again. You know, that here's Muhammad Ali. He, he wasn't the king of the world. He was a man. And he, there was good and there was bad and there was right and there was wrong. And I agreed and I disagreed with him. But take him for all in all. Put it all together. I'll not see his life again. There's right. not going to be another one like it. He was sui generis. Jonathan? Uh, I certainly have to agree with that. You know, we, we, we run the risk of mythologizing people, especially when they die. And, uh, and Ali does not deserve that. He deserves to be treated as a man uh, w with all of his uh, human flaws. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, it, we should be uh, honest in our evaluation and say very few people in, in our lifetime changed the American culture, changed the world um, as much as he did, uh, especially for somebody who's not in a position of political power or, or even um, saw himself primarily as a political um, person uh he didn't see himself as an activist yeah. but he he changed the culture more than more than in, uh most people i can think of but he, but his personality jonathan and obviously part of this is also the relationship that he had with, with people like howard cosell is the fact that he used the media at a very early time to be able to get his messages out and, and they were powerful messages the way he brought them forth that's right. He was a terrible businessman and a brilliant promoter. Yeah. He was unbelievably gifted naturally at, at calling attention to himself. Even in childhood, he just loved to be the center of attention. And uh, it may be because he was, um, he was uh, compensating for the fact that he wasn't a good student. But from day one, um, people talk about him um, just needing eyeballs. And, and he was brilliant at, at, at attracting those eyeballs and then at, at, at using that to provoke and to challenge people. Uh, Randy, your comments on that? Yeah, well, see, I, I would agree. He needed people. He loved people. 
but somehow he had that charisma. I mean, there's a lot of people that you know would like to be get all the eyeballs on him, and they don't get all the eyeballs on him. And and he was able to. You know, he just attracted people. If he was in a room full of people, he was the one that everybody paid attention to. His first his first promotion, as Jonathan said, was really himself. Uh, when he turned professional in 1961 or 60, and then early 61. He had a fight out in Vegas, and he was fighting a guy named Duke Seddenberg, I think. And, um, and, and he went on a radio show uh, before the fight, and he was on with Gorgeous George. And a reporter said to, said to then Cassius Clay, he said, Cassius, how are you going to do a fight? And Clay said something to the effect that, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to win. I'm, the, I'm trained hard. I'm ready to fight. Uh, Duke's a good fighter, but I think I'll end up winning. And then he turned, the reporter turned to Gorgeous George, said, George, how are you going to do in your fight, who was also wrestling in Vegas yeah. at that time? Yeah. And the guy says, man, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to rip off his arm. If I lose, <laughs> I'll crawl across the ring on my knees. I'll kiss his feet. But that's not going to happen. And Mohammed, Cassius's eyes were lighting up, and he's thinking, man, this is a good act. I want to go watch that fight. And from then on, we see the birth of the Louisville Rip, you know, the talking, the braggadocia. Yeah. And, you know, before he's selling any causes, he's selling himself. Randy, go into your book a little bit, because it, that relationship that that Ali had with, with Malcolm X, uh, when you think about that time of, of, of the history of the United States, Realistically, when you think about the African American community, you think about Malcolm X. You think about uh, obviously uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, and and probably the third one on that list, maybe Muhammad Ali. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. You have to realize Muhammad was raised in a segregated town, Louisville. Uh, he was raised by a father who was bitter bitter that he didn't get his due. You know, his father thought he was a great artist. His father talked all the time. And the one story, the stories that his father told were, if you become involved with white people, it's going to lead to problems. There was a, a house, firebomb, not far from Clay's neighborhood, when a black couple tried to move into a white neighborhood. Their house was firebombed. Cassius is about the same age as Emmett Till. And so that Emmett Till story, I mean, it was one that steered him and scarred him and he heard about. And so his idea was, you know, I don't want to follow Martin Luther King. I'm not about integration. I don't want to go on marches. Maybe he was on one protest and some water was thrown on hot water. Um, I, you know, I don't know. He told various stories. But what Malcolm X was saying and what Elijah Muhammad was saying is that, you know, separation – there's a white-eyed devil out there, blue-eyed devil. It's bad. Whites are going to hurt you. Yeah. Separate, separate. And that's the story. That's what he latched on to. Jonathan, you're in the process of doing a book on, on Muhammad Ali. Uh, what are you learning right now about Ali that maybe you didn't know before? Uh, there's so many things, um, you know, from, from sort of fundamental things that, that, that people have missed and not reported over the years. I mean, just to think about the fact that we're talking about somebody who changed America and became one of the most popular men in America. Um, and he's, he's, 
he's one generation removed from a sign painter. He's two generations removed from a convicted murderer. No, I mean, no, nobody's ever reported that um, Ali's grandfather was a convicted murderer, um, his, and his great grandfather was a slave. So th- this is a, you know an American dream story like no other because it gets mixed up in this tangled, um, very messy world of racial politics and civil rights movement, and, yep. and Ali is just. Uh, you know, a figure who could not have come from any place else but this strange American history that we've got. And, and um, you know, diving into it and learning about the, the, how the Nation of Islam uh, changed his life, how, uh, his, how his illness changed his life, uh, how the, you know, four marriages and, and countless affairs changed yep. his life. He's just a, a really an, an endlessly fascinating figure. Your comments about Muhammad Ali are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. And, of course, the ceremony is going on today in Louisville, Kentucky for Muhammad Ali. Uh, There will be an unbelievable procession through downtown. I'm sure the streets of Louisville are lined with people today. I'm being here in Philadelphia, I actually heard people calling into the local sports station earlier this week, talking about a couple of them, about maybe going from Philadelphia down to Louisville because of how much Ali meant to them. Again, your comments are welcome at 844-942-7866. I pose this question to both of you. Uh, and Jonathan, I'll start with you. Without boxing and without the life that he had in boxing, is Muhammad Ali's life that much different? I mean, he, he was such a personality. Could he have had the voice that he had without the boxing angle of it? I'd have to say no. Um, he often said, and, and some of his friends often said, you know, if it wasn't for boxing, Ali would have ended up being a you know janitor or a uh, you know working in a movie theater because he was not a good student. He uh, had had difficulty reading. Uh, it's very unlikely that he would have found a platform, a voice. It would have very unlikely that he would have found an audience. Um, you know, maybe he could have made it as an entertainer, as an actor, um, something that uh, didn't require, um, you know, uh, a great deal of education. But it's it's very unlikely that 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 he he would have had that kind of um, of a platform if not for his great athletic gifts. And we shouldn't minimize those. They were, yeah. you know, yeah. in, incredible. He was, you know, had a God-given talent, and um, and and we'd never, no one had ever seen a boxer like this before. And and if it wasn't for that fascination with his gifts, um, then I don't think people listen to him. Randy, well, I mean, it's 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 kind of a, would have Louis Armstrong had a had a, had a voice without the trumpet? Would have Frank Sinatra had a voice without his voice? Uh, you know, it, it is what brought him to the attention. I mean, any of uh, anybody that moves from some other field to politics, yeah. it's that initial field that gains them the attention. No, I, I think unquestionably Muhammad Ali may have ended up frustrated like his father had it not been for boxing. I, you know, I, it's, it's impossible to say, but it's very difficult to see how he could have gained the attention of the world yeah. and had the world listen to him. I mean, without boxing, if he had joined the nation, nation of Islam and had protested the war in Vietnam and refused induction, he would have ended up in prison, as Elijah Muhammad ended up in prison. Yeah. His cause, his case would not have become a cause to lab. And, and that is truly the, one of the key uh, moments in his career is obviously him saying, no, I will not go to war in Vietnam. He did not have any issues with uh, the Viet Cong, as, as the way he put it. And, and without that boxing career... As you said, he would have been in jail. There's, there's not much doubt about that. I think that's right, and I think that if, if it weren't for his protest over Vietnam, 
he might have also been remembered as a great boxer and, and, a, and, a, and a brilliant personality. But that protest uh, against the war really changed him and, and gave him an iconic status and, and because he suffered, because he, he was willing to sacrifice his, his career. And at the same time, you know, when he made that decision to, to, um, to skip the draft, the war was still fairly popular. It's while he's sitting out. It's while the government is denying him a right to earn a living and while he's um, faced with jail time that his image begins to change. Uh, he goes from being one of the most unpopular men in the country to being seen as a victim. And by the time he comes back to boxing in 1970, the war has become ma massively unpopular. There are protests all over college campuses. And, and the Nation of Islam is no longer the most radical um, black group in the country. There are, there are more radical groups. So, so the country has changed, and, and Ali is suddenly seen as not, the, uh, not, not quite as frightening and, and not quite as... Um, incomprehensible as he yeah. was um, in 1967. Jonathan, go into a little bit, and, and I don't know how much you, you've delved into this yet in terms of putting your book together, but obviously Parkinson's was a, 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 a really a serious, obviously, part of his life, and, and he lived with it for, for quite a long period of time, and, and a lot has been made about the relationships he has had with a variety of people that have been battling Parkinson's, including Michael J. Fox. Yeah, one of the really interesting things um, when when Ali was first diagnosed is how public he went with it. He never tried to hide it, never tried to um, um, dismiss it, um, and really dove in uh, along with his wife Lonnie almost immediately to um, raising awareness and raising money for the disease. And I think that uh, another part um, of his um, of his importance is is how he he confronted that disease. He he was willing to go on camera with his hands shaking and and you know not just to light the Olympic torch yeah. in Atlanta but also to do hundreds and maybe thousands of television interviews where you know sometimes he would fall asleep uh, on camera um that that takes a very special a very different kind of courage than than getting in the boxing ring Randy Oh I I, I agree uh, the park Jonathan and I seem to be agreeing on everything. This really uh, isn't this really isn't a topic where I expected the two of you to go <laughs> at it so uh, you know there, there's no question I mean he 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 went you know, I was I was giving a, a talk one time. There was a, a session on at, at Miami of Ohio, the, the university, yep. and a program was put together on Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali showed up for it, okay, to hear the mm. papers, to hear these academic papers on on him. And and I can remember it was it it was it was kind of poignant for me anyway. Afterwards, there was some sort of obligatory cocktail party or something, and Muhammad was there. And by that time, his ability to articulate had had deteriorated significantly. Sure, yeah. And he was he was for one time probably in his life he seemed to be alone. Nobody was around him. So I said to the host, I said, "Look, do you have do you have some cards?" And the host said, yeah. And because I know Ali just, he just loved magic. He loved card tricks. He loves his sight magic. He just loved it. Yeah. So and we all, all of us have a couple magic card tricks, you know, bad card tricks. In our, and so I said, champ, going over, and I sat down, and I, I did a card trick. And then he took the cards, and he did a card trick. And by that time, there's a group of people gathered around. And he did maybe two or three, and I maybe did two or three. And then he kind of, at the end, he points to me with that kind of pausing hand and shaking. And, and, and he was able to get out, 
you know, his famous line, you're not as stupid as you look, said like <laughs> he said it. And he said it to, a, you know, I mean, it's a line he said to a million people on a million different occasions, but uh, it's, it's, it's a memory that I will carry with me. Uh, Jonathan, did you have a- any opportunity to meet, uh, meet Mr. Ali along the way? Yeah, you know, I just met him in October, um, and uh, he wasn't doing interviews, hadn't been doing interviews for many, many years now, but I was able to talk to him and tell him about the book I was writing and to thank him for the opportunity, and he didn't speak back, but I I, I, I think he was listening. I, I have the impression he was, he was listening, and from what friends and family have told me is that he's very aware of what was going on in recent years, and um, and really, uh, it really endure, enjoyed spending time with his family and with his, especially his um, his grandchildren in in recent years. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number to give us a call. Your comments are welcome about Muhammad Ali. Your memories, your thoughts of his of his life, of his career. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. One of the things I guess we haven't really touched on, Randy, is uh, his love of of Africa. And obviously, you know, going over there to fight and and his fight against political inequity is 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 a pretty important piece to his career as well. No question. You know, he saw, you know, much like W.B. Du Bois at the turn of the century, that the problem of the world was the color line. It wasn't just the problem of America. It was a problem of the world. When he became champion, his first overseas visit was to Ghana and other African countries. Uh, he was he was loved in Africa. He was loved in the Middle East. He was, you know, we think of him as an American champion. Uh, you know, the Muslim world thinks of him as a Muslim champion. There, there's no question that Africa figured very prominently. And I think it goes back to the, the Olympics. I think 1960 in Rome was a really important experience for yeah. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. He goes, he leaves a segregated neighborhood, a segregated town, and he goes over to Rome, and suddenly the great figures in Rome on the American team are people like Wilma Rudolph, Rayford Johnson, Cassius Clay. They're all black. You know, he travels. There's a New York Times piece that talks about trading pins, which all the athletes did, and they said the world champion of trading pins was Muhammad Ali. He is He's going around the Olympic Village. He's talking to different people. He's meeting different people. This is the Olympics that B.B. Rikila wins the marathon and it became famous. So I think that experience showed him there was a larger world out there, and much of the world was a world of color yeah. and, and, and a world of integration. And in some respects, that may have uh, his appearance in the Olympics that year may have led to uh, the the protest in 1968 with John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith as well. I think there's no question it, it that, that, that that John Carlos and those guys could not have done what they did had Muhammad Ali not come along first yeah. and shown that a black athlete could have a voice, that a black athlete didn't have to just take what the white world gave him and be thankful. Um, Ali changed that, and those guys were a part of the next wave. Gentlemen, thank you very much for giving us your time today. Randy, Jonathan, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Randy Roberts, uh, who is at uh, Purdue University, the book that he has co-authored, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Jonathan Ike, who is writing a book about Muhammad Ali right now, former reporter at the Wall Street Journal. We now turn to Davis Miller, who is also writing about a book about him. He is a a friend uh, of Ali's. Davis, welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me on at this Last moment. Well, no. Actually, my book's just been published. Okay. It's called Approaching Ali. Great. Uh, a Reclamation in Three Acts. And it's um, 
so strange that uh, it's been published right as um, uh, the demise of my longtime dear friend. Well, I was going to say, obviously, that you know that, that that's a, a, a great coincidence uh, and an unfortunate one at this. Uh, what are really your, your lasting memories of, of Muhammad Ali, whether they be in the ring or out? They're both, and they're all personal. I had the opportunity to spar with him um, at his training camp in Deer Lake, um, Pennsylvania, way back in 1975. I was a kid. I was uh, uh, hoping to become a world champion kickboxer. And um, uh, it was ended up being my first ever piece. I wrote about it for Sports Illustrated when I was in college. Yeah. And, uh, um, and and the, the act of being in the ring with him, which I don't think anybody really is, is much written about. Uh, it was stunning, you know. Um, as I entered the ring, and I'm five seven, you know, and five seven and a half, maybe <laughs> on a good day. And, and of course, he was six three and a half, and he outweighed me by one hundred pounds. And he he turned to the audience and said, "This man is a great karate master," which you know there was no truth in that at all. <laughs> and and he said, "When I get when you get in the ring with me, you're gonna think you've been whooped by Bruce Lee." And and uh, when the bell rang, he he walked backwards uh, to stepped backwards to the ropes and and took a seat on the second strand um, in his rope dope and um, uh, invited me and in, beckoned me in with a quick wave of gloves and I threw kicks at him and when he he dodged them as easily as if he'd been doing it his whole life and uh, then I threw three. Uh, really basically martial arts blows that he hadn't seen before, kickboxing blows. And I caught him with all three, and which was a mistake, because until then he'd been sleepwalking, and he woke up, came off of the ropes, as he'd done with George Foreman, and hit me with a single jab, and suddenly I couldn't see, I couldn't <laughs> hear. My legs went to soup, and, and, and there were about 100 spectators there, and they sounded like they were in, you know, 18 miles away, and, and he knew he couldn't knock me out with a single shot, of course, and he could have anyway. But what he did instead is he came and draped this long arm around my shoulders. He said, you're fast, and you sure can hit to be so little. I mean, he may as well have said he was adopting me yeah. and, and uh, because he'd been my childhood hero uh, and had saved me from depression after my mom died, um, uh, made me believe I could do anything. But my my all time best memory of him is 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 a far more recent one. Um, we were friends, dear friends for thirty years. In fact, uh, Lonnie Ali was writing me from the hospital just a couple of hours before um, before Muhammad went out. Right. And uh, but um, years ago, on Muhammad and I share the same birthday, uh, ten years apart. Oh wow! Um, and we celebrated his fiftieth birthday and my 40th birthday together um, with my six-year-old son, then six-year-old son, Isaac. And we were at his home in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And we were there three days. Ollie was this magnificent practical joker. Mm-hmm. And he, would, he, he chased Isaac around furniture, um, uh, jumped out behind, from behind the furniture, would pick him up, throw him on the ground, tickle him, um, uh, say things like, I'm the mummy, I, I'm Frankenstein, I'm going <laughs> to eat you up. And, and then, as we're, as we're getting ready to leave after three really very lovely days, it's been, it's, uh, this was in January, and it's been January 17th. 
and uh, 1992. And it's been snowing the entire three days. And not much accumulation, just a little bit. But Muhammad had already had Parkinson's then for close to 20 years. Yep. And um, he's wearing these slick-soled uh, street shoes. And he decides he's going to walk us out to the car. And I'm worried he's going to fall. He would occasionally fall in the house then sometimes. And uh, so he's, he's, taking, he's escorting us to the car. We can, my son and I. And he sees a video camera in the back seat. And he points to it. And I know what he wants. He wants me to turn it on. And he's going to be the public Muhammad Ali. Right. And, and, I, and I did. And he picks up my six-year-old son and puts his head right next to him so that what's framed in the camera is just Ali's head and Isaac's. And he says some of the most amazing stuff. He says, um, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, obviously. He says, uh, this man will be the next champion. He will be the great white hope. <laughs> I did not say dope. I said hope. And and he will be the champion in 2020. Look at the face. 2020. I will be the manager. I'll be 93. And we will be the greatest of that day of all times. And, and then, as soon as he finished that, and I turned the camera off, he turned both to my son and me, and he said, you'll remember this when you're an old, old man. And I will take that memory. You know, it's a very commonplace memory. It probably may not mean anything to anyone but me and my son. Right. But I'll take that to the grave with me. And, and that's who he was. Yep. I mean, he treated almost everyone as if they were family, particularly as he got older. Well, he would have always done it. But but the I think in many respects the older Ali, um, the Ali with Parkinson's, uh, became an even greater man uh, than the young boisterous Ali. Um, and and when people say he could not talk uh, in those last years, they're entirely wrong. Uh, he would talk your ear off. Yep. Um, but if he were in a public place, uh, uh, he wouldn't do it. He considered it undignified. Great. And to... um, uh, I'm sorry. Finish up, Davis. And, and you know, and and I think he became some sort of ailing family member to the world. Yeah. Um, his Parkinson's disease allowed him to do that, which just added to the Ali mythology. You know, all these other things everybody else talks about. The 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 older Ali, the Parkinsonian Ali, became uh, became everyone's sick father or grandfather or brother. And I don't think that mythology has existed before Muhammad Ali, as so many other things didn't either. Great to have you for a few minutes, Davis. Uh, glad we could uh, make contact with you. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks a lot. You got it. Davis Miller uh, joining us, friend of Muhammad Ali. Uh, you know, there's not too many people, I, I would bet, still around that can say that uh, that they sparred with Ali. And so literally from that story that he just told right there, Davis Miller was stung by the bee. There, there's no question about that. Uh Great man and, and certainly uh, uh, a great loss for America today. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.